Welcome to Remembering Yugoslavia, a podcast where I, Peter Korchnak, explore how the people of the former Yugoslav republics remember and imagine their former homeland, a country that no longer exists. In the short history of this podcast, I've already alluded to music sparking my interest in Yugoslavia and its role in keeping the memory of that disappeared country alive. My guest in this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia is Martin Pogacar, a researcher at the Institute of Culture and Memory Studies in Ljubljana, Slovenia. We met earlier this year at his office and talked about the musical and digital afterlives of Yugoslavia. Branimir Stulic, Slovenian subversives, cyber Yugoslavs, and of course Tito also make an appearance. Martin Pogacar, you've written on a lot of topics related to the former Yugoslavia. Pop culture, music, digital memory. How did you become professionally interested in these subjects? I never did write a lot, but I'm kind of interested in many different topics. And uh, my interest really started uh, at the end of uh, university studies. I mean, my interest in, in the whole topic of Yugoslavia and where it is and what's happening to it in the present. We were living, you know, in the early years of independence. And quite naturally, the interest was first aroused by music and cinema, which I always loved. And um, for some time after the the collapse of Yugoslavia, I had this impression that, you know, this is going to be a nice emancipatory project, really. I'm kind of reluctant now to emphasize that, but during the 80s, when I was about 10, I now, when I look back on my then self, I can say that I was a little Slovenian nationalist. I was, you know, like all stuff Slovenian and the linden tree and the flag and, you know, and there was this slogan in the 80s, Slovenia, my country, and there was love in the name of the country. And this was really, it was, and not just for me, it was really a generational thing. We all felt, you know, wow, that's something different. But then later on, when I was growing up, I realized that, you know, of course, there were things that were really, really bad in Yugoslavia. And there was, you know, it was a, a state that had a really strong police and uh, the in- Ministry of Interior and stuff like that. But also, when I was, I was just old enough to see how the new system was being installed. And I kind of had a bit of a problem with that because it was trying to just eradicate everything that came before. And this for me was not really acceptable. And I was, you know, and this was this kind of a trigger, I would say now, I didn't really know back then, that got me into searching for stuff and looking for music and uh, films from the former Yugoslavia. And this was, on the one hand, an opportunity to learn the language, which I can speak now. This was the time of high school, and it was a sort of like a kind of opposition to Slovenian nationalism. It was always channeled through, at least for teenagers at that time. Well, not all of them, clearly, but uh, through some kind of subversive use of Yugoslav pop culture. And this was really uh, quite a formative experience for me, because I it was then that I found a lot of music and films that then later on became also part of my studies. The dominant language of Yugoslav pop culture was Serbo-Croatian, a politically safe name that's nowadays sometimes used for that closely knit group of languages is Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian, or BCS, sometimes with the addition of Montenegrin, or BCSM. I wonder what part of Martin's fascination with Yugoslav pop culture had to do with it being a foreign language, a foreign culture even to some extent, 
and what part was indeed simple teenage rebellion. My mother tongue is Slovenian. Uh, I did in we did have in elementary school one year of Serbo-Croatian, but that was in terms of formal education. That was it. After the independence, the you know the all the communication between that would normally also be part uh, going on in uh, let's say in Serbo or Croatian or something was just not there. So it was music really and and cinema that got me into the language through studying music and also cinema to some extent i found out that the post independence construction of the past was not i mean it was an a start of a new political mythology and through music also and music of course it, it, this was not the last stop it just somehow pushed me to research further on and i realized that for instance and especially if we're speaking of uh, punk rock or a uh, new wave that came a bit later in uh, in the country that this was a sort of like an organic opposition to the state and it was never conceptualized as a uh, as a dissent or as would be some other initiatives in other socialist countries at the time and uh, what i found really relevant is that this was a sort of like an intrasystemic critique through popular culture. Let's say the 1990s cultural artistic scene did in fact grasp the point that something has to be changed because Yugoslavia, after all the years it existed after the Second World War, it did somehow, and there were all internal and external factors to that, of course, um, did become a, somehow, it did get into an impasse in a way. And there were a variety of different options being, you know, thrown around uh, as to what to do. The alternative culture of the 1980s did have, if not answers, it did at least some ideas about what needed to be done with Yugoslavia, which I think they did recognize as a valid and valuable framework from where to go on. So it was not necessarily the artistic opposition, so to speak, that wanted to see the country fall apart. It was rather, I would say, the refracting of sentiment through politics and through nationalization that did, in fact, lead to a situation where a lot of people saw Yugoslavia as a problem that cannot be solved. So, music and rebellion, and rebellion through music, was your path to Yugoslavia. How was Yugoslav music subversive? Well, there's, let's say there's maybe two levels of subversiveness. The one's level of subversiveness of, let's say, new wave music is in the 1980s, when this music was part of a sort of like alternative underground youth culture, and as such, did possess some kind of, you know, they, those people would come in conflict with police and, you know, so, and albums would be confiscated and people would go to prison also. So, But the perhaps more interesting bit is um, how this music can still act subversive today. What we tend to do when we speak about Yugoslavia, then we see Yugoslavia as a monolith, monolithic block. And we forget that this was a country that existed from 1945 to 1991, which is quite a substantial amount of time, you know, in terms of human life, obviously not <laughs> the deep time. Also, 
looking at the period from 1991 until today, this is again nearly 30 years and a lot of stuff has happened. And so even when we speak about nostalgia or Yugo nostalgia, there is, I would say, a distinct sort of like time frame is after the collapse of the country and up until mass digitization of communication. And this was the time when Yugo nostalgia was really sort of like underground phenomena. Everybody who would say anything positive about Yugoslavia was labeled uh, Yugo nostalgic. And there was a lot of music circulating on uh, cassettes. So, and this was this very hands-on culture where, you, you know, we would have tape with songs that 10 years earlier nobody would put on the same tape. But for us, this was sort of like a bricolage of Yugoslav sound or music, uh, music scene or the, the sort of like a soundscape of Yugoslavia, which regardless of the fact that pop and punk rock did not go together <laughs> well in, you know, in the original reality, for us it was an expression of, look, what you are making us forget. And we didn't want to forget that. Because what happened clearly, in, in spe uh, especially I can speak for, uh, for Slovenia, after 1991, Yugoslav music and Yugoslav cinema were ostracized from the media. You could no, no, you could no longer hear any music that was not Slovenian or Western. <laughs> so, and this was just going completely out of the the lived sonic sensorium. So, in my opinion, then this is where the the subversion started because we kind of using that music for you know fun parties or whatever, and even playing it. There was also a lot of bands that did played that kind of music. We saw that as an expression of disagreement with uh, nationalization of the country and also the limitation of uh, cultural space. Yeah, I think that was a popularization of a cultural landscape, really. And what about Slovenian music in particular? Now, if I try to see, to have a look at this question like wider perspective, I cannot really eliminate my personal factor in in that, which is that I, much more than anything else, prefer rock music. So that's why I think that, for instance, 1990s in Slovenia were really, really, you know, good in terms of music. There was this sort of like a hype of garage rock. And there was really some really, really good music being made. And also in Croatia uh, at that time, and they would cross borders and, they would, and the singers and uh, musicians would, change bands and stuff like that. So, And that for me was really interesting. The problem is that I don't see this today, but this, does, this, this doesn't necessarily mean that stuff is not going on. It's just that I'm too old to frequent those venues, you know, that much. So in general, I think what did happen with music in, but not just in the transition from socialist Yugoslavia to Slovenia, but in general, that it much more than, you know, before it became an industry. We rarely see today a band that would rise to fame, not as part of a, of a business plan. <laughs> Clearly, this does not mean that there aren't bands that do rise to fame, but I, I don't really see very much of that. The other issue is that, and this is related in a way, I would say, to the, the whole logic permitting digital culture, which is just never enough stuff. 
And we also have so, so much music, you know. And there's this question which I don't really have an answer to, you know, what will be considered a hit in 20 years' time? You know, there, there, there are these bands, I don't know, like, you know, Pink Floyd and Rolling Stones and that were huge and still are. And they have made, a, you know, they have left a mark on uh, music heritage of the world, really. And it's really difficult to assess, you know, they, nobody could probably predict that they will be still listen to 50 years later you know but what what this also shows is that in this deluge of music that we are exposed to today daily our listening habits change we don't i would say in general engage with music as we used to and this comes down also to the very infrastructure of listening to music just to to illustrate if once you had to put a record on the player and then just do all the necessary physical stuff to make it play to to hear it today just click a play button and it playlist will play endlessly for instance on youtube it just goes on and on and on uh and this fundamentally changes i think our relationship to music and also uh i'm afraid it devalues the relevance of music in contexts where we are just listening just like consuming it like air right The transition from physical to digital media changed the way we experience music, yes. How did the transition occur on the background of post-Yugoslav history? Well, again, as I was saying, it's now, it's now like 30 years after the collapse of the state. And the agenda of you know listening to music, I think it changed in that time. So if we had this, like let, let's say, analog decade of the 1990s, roughly speaking, then with the... Uh, with the social media and blogs and there was uh, there was a number of sites that would offer mp3 files to download of music that you would could not get anywhere else because and th- there's uh, another interesting aspect is there was this political regime change and there was also a transition from tape and lps to cds and this transition you use in at least in the 1990s never happened for obvious reasons it kind of then later on you could get all the music legally <laughs> but previous to that it was mostly as i was saying uh mixtapes and uh a bit later on downloading music and there was also an interesting phenomenon that i was uh, also uh, researching for my book was music blogs and this was really really an interesting phenomenon because it was very ephemeral in a way because it was illegal to put music in none of those blogs actually hosted the files themselves. It was also always done through remote file sharing service. And then slowly these services were being shut down. <laughs> and and there was something that was sort of like a, a ceiling of a musical archive that was just gone. Although those people who they invested a lot of time, probably money as well, into buying records and digitizing them. And there was a guy who had, I don't know, 500,000 songs in his blog. But then It's still there, the blog, but the music is just kind of (laughs) inaccessible now. But that's uh, a a bit of a different story. And I'm I'm not sure where the interest in former Yugoslav music or the music from other parts of Yugoslavia today comes from. I would say one thing is that the, the whole mass of music and other stuff coming from this country somehow you know, just forgot about the boundaries and the borders and the, 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 the languages and the linguistic borders and stuff like that. Unless in a very, very specific 
context, this music doesn't evoke any kind of feelings for Yugoslavia because it's just another song on the radio. Can you elaborate on the transition from analog to digital to social media? What effect did it have on the development of Yugo nostalgia or generally feelings towards the former Yugoslavia? Massively, I would say the internet came in the region very late eight, uh, 90s. And this was a time after the wars have officially ended and there was still not very much official communication, you know, media communication between the countries. So for me, at, in, let's say, for, for example, in 1991 when NATO was bombing Serbia, I, was, I would be sitting in front of my computer listening to B-92 to, you know, find out what was going on. And interestingly, this was also the news and all the, the radio program was, you know, there was news and there was music, obviously. And there was a lot of music that was kind of Yugoslavia evoking, Yugo-nostalgic and so on. So this was really interesting for me to see how a sense of normalcy was trying to be restored through, also through, through music. B-92 was a radio station broadcasting out of Belgrade that was legendary for its anti-war and anti-Milosevic stance and for playing rock music. Matthew Collins's 2001 book, This is Serbia Calling, is an excellent account of B-92's history until that point. B-92 later launched a TV channel and later still a publishing house and a record company, becoming a sort of a commercial media conglomerate. When it comes to digital media, I think digital media, especially in, let's say, Web 1.0, played a really important uh, role in refining broken friendships because, obviously, a lot of people migrated. And there was, I would say, two kinds of migration. One is physical migration in place, and then the other, which is more elusive, but nevertheless powerful is uh, temporal migration. We all migrate temporally. So, But, you know, in an ideal situation, you are bor born in a... Well, but that's not quite ideal because statistically you live through three countries in a lifetime. <laughs> but transition from Yugoslavia to Slovenia was... And from Yugoslavia to all other countries was very painful, not just that there was wars, obviously, but also that a lot of people had to leave to you know, save their lives or find an opportunity in life. Uh, but also the ones who stay, they also suffered a some, some kind of loss. You know, there was a loss of homeland. I was born in a specific time that I was indoctrinated into the Yugoslav system and pioneers. And, you know, when, now when I look at it, I, I remember I would never really want to write a hundred times Tito is our president. I find it really ridiculous. But on the other hand, I clearly remember how we would be, and I know this had very little effect, but still, to build some kind of world consciousness, we would be writing letters of peace to the UN in school. So, And nobody does that today. Towards the end of the 90s, we, th th there, were quite a lot, there was a lot of former Yugoslavs living abroad. And for them, the internet was the medium of reconnection or re finding lost friendships and broken bonds and, you know, whatever metaphor <laughs> you want. And it was a prime medium to share music and jokes. And, and there were also in, there was a number of websites, you know, dedicated to Yugoslavia and to Tito and so on. And there, would, there was one, for instance, that it was called Cyber Yugoslavia. 
that also issued passports <laughs> for cyber Yugoslavs, you know, and each one, each person who applied for a passport also was assigned a ministry for something. <laughs> it was a kind of a jocular attempt, you know, to still keep it alive, even if, you know, just on two square meters where the servers stand. <laughs> the Cyber Yugoslavia website still exists, tucked away in a 1.0 segment of the internet at yuga.com. That's J-U-G-A dot com. You can read its constitution in a number of languages, including English, and it's a fun read. And see its symbol, a logo of sorts. But that's about it. Like the actual country, Cyber Yugoslavia is all but a memory. And by the way, the site lists the area of Cyber Yugoslavia at zero square meters. I, I think this is a really important medium also, uh, and an infrastructure of really rebuilding what was lost during the, either you look at it as a breakup of the country or establishment of new countries. And I think that's where, uh, particularly at, let's say, at the turn of 1990s and 200s, there was this very strong, sort of like very, I would say, positive use of the media to legitimately express a feeling of loss or, you know, uh, forgotten childhood because what and that's also an important emphasis here I would say is that the collapse of the country interrupted the existing biographies and also anticipated biographies so this was a, a rupture in time you know so people who were old enough to have had Yugoslav biographies they were rendered invalid and people who were just kind of getting into their own biographies their country was gone Interestingly, for the most, I would say, part of the of the latter 90s, the majority of stuff going on on the internet in relation to Yugoslavia was quite positive, sort of. It was later on that the other side <laughs> got much more active and kind of just ran over this more positive you know, thinking about about the past with, but this this is again then also part of uh, more global processes of, you know, the consequences of digitization also in terms of uh, polarization and um, fake news. The basic thing that kind of underlies all this is that you know we all have room now to share our story, and that's while it's you know can be seen as a sort of like. A democratization of communication it also has a side effect and this is quite an important one and this is that there is all of a sudden no coherent universally more or less valid narrative about anything so those experts they don't know stuff if who needs them you know oh no, yeah 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 we had this yugoslavia it was just like terror yeah there was just people like were imprisoned for whatever which of course is part of the story, but it's not the whole part of the story because on the other hand, for instance, Yugoslavia, especially compared to Slovenia today, it had diplomacy that knew what they were doing. You know, it was, uh, and, and this is almost like a swear word today, non-alignment movement, you know. <laughs> let's say there was a, a first league. It was like, let's say, the US and Russia, and there was, because they, they would define the Cold War. And there was, let's say, the second league, which was the Western Europe. Then the Yugoslavia was the third league, which is way, way better than being 35th league. <laughs> you know? 
Refusing to align with both the capitalist West and the Soviet-dominated East, Yugoslavia forged its own third path, if you will. Formally launched in 1961 in Belgrade, on in large part Tito's initiative and leadership, the non-aligned movement comprised the countries that did not formally join either the U.S. or the USSR-led camp. The leadership of the non-aligned movement became a source of national pride for the citizens of Yugoslavia, many of whom to this date listed among the reasons why life in Yugoslavia was superior to today's. Non-alignment, for instance, was something that was so easily thrown away in 1991, but it was a cultural, political and economic some uh, sort of a union of uh, the subaltern, in a way, so to speak. And I was just uh, a couple of months ago, there was a museum of modern art. There's, uh, there was an interesting exhibition about art and uh, non-alignment in Yugoslavia. And there was this huge map of the world and the lines connecting the country to all the countries it had cultural relations with. And it was amazing. It was the, the entire world. <laughs> Whereas today, this... You know, there was also, while, as I was saying uh, earlier, there was this uh, sort of like a shrinking of cultural space. There was also a shrinking of a global embeddedness because Yugoslavia, clearly it was not West, but it was not proper East either. Yeah? So, and it did kind of manage to at least present itself as being somewhere else. And I'm really, really surprised that a young country in 91 that Slovenia was did not try to capitalize on something that would have helped because if you just focus ideologically and economically on Western Europe, you're just kind of leaving a lot of the world out. You know? All right, back to the internet. What happened to Yugoslavia when social media came along? Well, with social media, there was all of a sudden several times more Yugoslavias in some kind of afterlife-ish edition. <laughs> there was tens of pages on Facebook and uh, music videos on YouTube. And I think this was also, while there was so, on the one hand, so much stuff available, there was also just too much stuff available. It's also, I would say, part of what leads to polarization in today's not only political debate, but also everyday life, is that in order to be heard, you have to shout. And you have to be outrageous to, you know, stand out from all other outrageousnesses. For me, it was interesting to see how certain events find their new life. I call that digital afterlife of Yugoslavia because obviously the country was dead and it had so many digital reincarnations. Also, what I found interesting was, for instance, when people died there would be, this news would be posted. And this was for me interesting because of my primary interest in, is, interest is in memories. So, and then I was trying to see what brings out a certain like event like death of a famous singer, for instance, uh, brings out in people. And sometimes it's just an emoticon and, or just like a few words. Or, and then through this, I kind of try to analyze the, the effect of... Uh, well, not only the, the how people think about those persons, but also what uh, the very infrastructure of communication system permits and enables and what it prevents. And for me, another interesting case was of uh, remembering in uh, digital media, ecology was 
digital video memorials that you find on YouTube, for instance. Uh, and there was a time when there was a lot of distinctly individual motivated videos online and they would use a famous song and then just paste photos and there was one example that's really also uh, quite well shows the the workings of and the limits of using digital media for memory there was um some time ago a video that was using a song that was cover version of Leonard Cohen's The Partisan and it was sang by Branimir Stulic of Azra Singer and then one person found that song and made a video dedicated to her grandfather who was a partisan and just died and there would be photos of the grandfather and also just random photos from the second world war and so and this was really the 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 music and the images combined this was a really powerful monument in a way you know a memorial to that grandfather but what made it different from any other kind of memorial because it was a living one because people would watch it and comment on it so and there was a lot oh my grandfather was also so in a community a mnemonic community formed so to speak which lived for quite a while until the owner of the song decided that was enough and made youtube remove the video so yes obviously he was protecting his copyrighted material but at the same time he eliminated a mnemonic community that developed there and they were telling their stories and their memories and how they remember you know what they remember from what they were told by their grandparents obviously there was also more conflictual in exchanges between you know you dirty communists and you know you traitors which doesn't uh, really elucidate much stuff about history as such or whatever did really happen uh, so for me is really no, uh, for my work, it's really, really not as important what really did happen, but what we make of it now. Obviously, there's also always it's essential that you also know what happened, and that's what Jan Asman calls mnemo history. And I think this is a really timely concept, although it's a bit old. But in digital culture, it's very, very relevant thing, especially in the present moment where the past has become a sort of like an interpretive stock to be used in decontextualized, recontextualized, completely false or not false, it doesn't matter. As long as we are referring to some past, and so the past kind of is gaining this political currency, especially through dehistoricizing it in a way. And finally, what about Yugoslavia's place in today's Slovenia? Well, for one thing, I would say that if we look at Yugo nostalgia, it's sort of like not really a movement, but it's gone. I would say nobody really thinks about Yugoslavia through the prism of Yugo nostalgia. What has come to fruition over the years, I would say, that certain, let's say, values, for instance, solidarity, uh, anti-fascism, and also human rights have been found to be very pronounced in Yugoslavia, if not in reality, but then definitely in the, the way the ideologically the country was made up. One thing that is also missing today is during Yugoslavia, you had a really strong, it was intrasystemic and it was still socialist, but there was a critique of the system. There was rethinking, constant rethinking of the system going on, and they were trying 
to improve that system. Whereas today, I really don't see any pronounced rethinking of the system apart from those dirty leftists who want to ruin everything. <laughs> and that's, wh that's what I am missing today is critique of the p system we're living in now would have a place in society, which I, I, I mean, I don't think it does. And Yugoslavia, if, for instance, in the early uh, post-independence years was a sort of like pop culturally interesting phenomena and it had a lot to say about stuff we were losing in terms of uh, music and cinema and so on. I would say that today Yugoslavia, although you would still hear I mean, it's still used as a sort of like a disqualifying tool between left and right. And especially, I mean, the right clearly likes to use Yugoslavia as a sort of like discrediting uh, mechanism. Yugoslavia today, at least in the way it kind of figures in media and political landscapes, has become a source of uh, finding or refining values that, in this very, I would say, rough neoliberalization of post-socialist countries have been just discarded, you know, as part of the system. And, and this, this is, I would say, the burdensome legacy of Yugoslavia is because you cannot freely speak about social justice, <laughs> free, accessible housing, I mean, decent wages, without being labeled a Yugoslav or a socialist, you know. And it does not really help. <laughs> On Facebook, I follow many pages dedicated to Socialist Yugoslavia and its leader, Josip Broz Tito. Back in 2016, Martin counted at least 50 of the former and 20 of the latter Facebook pages. Pages with names like, I admit I'm a Yugoslav, Yugoslavia for beginners and fans, Yugoslavia the country of brotherhood and unity, and Titomania, the daily dose of Josip Broz, memories of comrade Tito, and so on. They've amassed thousands, tens of thousands in some cases, likes, and post and cross-post frequently. I play Azra, or Yekaterina Velika, or Ribla Chorba on YouTube and peruse these pages to follow the news and the popular discourse about socialist Yugoslavia, one corner of it anyway, to discover Yugoslav music beyond the pop and rock echoing through the web, and, to be honest, to get a chuckle out of the design of their memes. Still, I feel a tinge of melancholy, desperation even, in the praise and adulation of those long-ago giants. A sense of loss and struggle that no amount of digital noise can alleviate. And if I think of these pages as a sort of resistance for their creators and fans, I can't avoid thinking of remembering Yugoslavia in the same way. Because what is memory? What is remembering if not a way to subvert the passage of time? Find all the links, photos, and videos referenced in this episode in the show notes at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. Support the production of the Remembering Yugoslavia podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia. Transcript by Zorica Popovic, 
outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich. Additional music by NoSense, licensed under Creative Commons. Special thanks to Rebecca Schlesinger. I am Peter Korchniak. Adio.